Ephesians chapter 1, and we're beginning at verse 3, and we're going to read down to verse 14, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, and again, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the reading and preaching of his word this evening. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of all blessing, that you are the God who is worthy to be praised, that you are the God who has given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ, and yet our hearts are dull and our minds are often disinterested. And so we pray that you would shine the light of the gospel in this place and into our minds and hearts tonight. We pray that you would remove every obstacle. We pray that you would remove spiritual dullness and complacency and make us to see the depths and the riches of what you have done for us and all that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would speak from heaven and that you would uh, give us understanding, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would make us to know what is the hope of our calling What are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of that power that you work in us who believe according to that great power that you worked in your son, Father, when you raised him from the dead? And so do these things for us in this place. We pray that you would get all the glory and honor and that we would leave this place rejoicing and giving you glory for the greatness of your grace in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we are looking at Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. The Apostle Paul has uh, introduced this letter. He has uh, introduced himself. He has described those, um, the identity of those to whom that he is writing as saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. And he has wished them that divine benediction of grace and peace. And now the Apostle moves into his letter, and we read in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, many years ago now, when I was working at a restaurant, one of the, um, one of the guys that I worked with at this particular restaurant, um, who was uh, probably the most hostile to me as the only Christian working in this restaurant, who would often come in to work and would make some sacrilegious joke just to try to get up under my sin, that skin, that same individual, I, I distinctly remember he would stand at the front door of the restaurant as, um, 
as uh, people would come in and then would go out of that restaurant. And as he held the door for them, he would say to almost everyone as they left that restaurant, have a blessed day, have a blessed day. And I remember thinking, isn't that interesting that the individual who is most antagonistic to me as a believer and to the gospel that he hated and rejected, a gospel about blessing, a gospel that defines what blessing is, a gospel that makes blessing possible, would himself seek to wish blessing on people as they walked out of that restaurant. And it got me thinking that there are many misplaced ideas about blessing. The language of blessing is used today with little or no understanding about its nature or about its cost. Um, There are places in Scripture that the entire Bible, in one sense, could be reduced down to a book that is about God's blessings and God's curses on fallen men and women Um, And our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the blessing of God to be restored by his grace, by his promise in Jesus Christ to undeserving sinners. And it's as we come into a book like Ephesians, and there are actually three epistles in the New Testament that break out in a doxology to God, in a blessing, in a declaration of blessing. Um, Here in Ephesians, also in 1 Corinthians also in 2 Corinthians and in 1 Peter. Every other letter enters in with Paul giving thanksgiving, but these letters break out into blessing, into blessing to God and into a, a, a divine proclamation of what the blessing of God is for the people of God by the grace of God to redound to God for his glory. And it's interesting that if we summarize the book of Ephesians, we've said there are a number of ways we could summarize it, but a very simple summary of this book is that it is about the salvation of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the praise of the glory of the God of grace alone. Paul is going to repeat that refrain several times in the section that we're looking at tonight, to the praise of the glory of of his grace, that the end result of what God does in Jesus Christ is to bring himself glory even while he showers us by his sovereign grace with all the blessings in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably heard that this is the longest unbroken sentence in the New Testament. You wouldn't know it from your English Bibles because our English translators have quite unhelpfully put periods and commas and semicolons and have made it look much cleaner and neater. But what Paul is doing as he now gets into the subject matter of this letter, as he breaks out into this divine God-intoxicated blessing, what the Apostle Paul does is he, he essentially um, gives us a long run-on sentence in order to enumerate for us the blessings of God that we appropriate by faith in Jesus Christ, merely by the grace, the sovereign grace of God to unworthy, helpless sinners like us. I want to read to you a great quote um, on this. One theologian has said, The marvelous thing about Paul, who is so powerfully conscious of the gospel grammar, is that he is relatively indifferent to the rule of Greek grammar or, for our purposes, the rules of English grammar. He breaks one of the cardinal rules of English grammar or most ordinary grammar insofar as the words from the beginning of verse 3 to the end of verse 14 constitute one solid, extended, complicated single sentence. 
Breathlessly, the words tumble out of him with connections and interconnections. The Apostle Paul, and listen to this very carefully, the Apostle Paul has been so gripped by the gospel, it has so enlarged his spirit, he finds the gospel of Jesus Christ to be so massive in its blessings that he breaks the grammatical conventions of his time, our time, any time, to try breathlessly to express to us Do you see the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Has it dawned upon you that the blessings of God flow down upon you like some divine thunderstorm breaking over your heads or some glorious waterfall that endlessly pours down upon your lives the blessings of God's grace? I'm pretty sure that was a long run-on sentence as well as as a citation, but but. What is being said is that Paul has a reason for this long, lengthy, pregnant declaration of the blessings of God to his people, and that is he has been so gripped by the gospel, and he has been so taken back by what he's going to tell us in chapter 3 is the length and the breadth and the width and the height of the love of Christ which passes knowledge, and he has delved so deep and he has swam so deep and he has waded so deeply into the waters that he can't wait to take us with him. And he wants to take us down to the very depths. And he wants to say from the outset of this letter, my friends, there is so much in Jesus. You know what's remarkable about the context of this letter? Is that Paul spent three years in Ephesus He established a a seminary, the School of Tyrannus. He taught every day for three-plus years the depths of the riches of the truth of the gospel in the scriptures, and yet he is now writing this letter to that church with such well-trained pastors and elders who had been personally trained by Paul, and it's as if Paul is saying at the outset, there is more, there is so much more, there is so much more more in Jesus than you realize. There is so much more in the Savior than you have come to understand and embrace. In fact, before we come to look at this in any depth, I want to point out that what Paul does after verses 3 through 14 in the following section is he turns to God and he prays and he pleads with God to help the people to whom he's writing and us understand exactly what it is he's saying. He prays that God would enlighten the eyes of their hearts that they may understand, that God would give divine illumination by the Spirit to understand the hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, and the exceeding greatness of the power that works in those who believe. Well, as we come this evening to look at verses 3 through 14, the first thing that we're going to notice is that Paul is essentially praying a divine blessing. It is a divine blessing proclaimed. He is actually not writing in in address to the saints and the faithful in Ephesus. He is making a divine proclamation to God that he is inscripturating for them. God the Father is the one to whom Paul's addressing this divine blessing. And then secondly, we're going to see that he is giving us spiritual blessings uh, enumerated. And finally, he is going to tell us how those spiritual blessings are appropriated. We're going to see a divine blessing proclaimed, spiritual blessings enumerated, and finally, the spiritual blessings appropriated. Well, notice in verse 3, when Paul comes into this divine blessing, this Benediction, benediction uh, in Latin, bene, bene dictum, simply means a good word, 
We pronounce that benediction at the end of the service. That is God's good word to you. It is God pronouncing his blessing on you. In a sense, the Apostle Paul, knowing all that he has in Christ, is at the very beginning of this letter turning, and he is pronouncing a benediction on God. He is proclaiming a good word of blessing. He is eulogizing God. Remember, as a boy, my dad used to often say, we shouldn't eulogize people at funerals. We should talk about the Lord. We should talk about redemption. We should talk about the hope of the gospel. We shouldn't spend too much time fixating on a person. We should spend the majority of our time speaking about the Lord and the one who is the resurrection and the life. I think, though it may be a bit of an overreaction, I think that my dad is right because here what Paul is teaching us at the outset of this letter is that all of the things that he's going to explain about the grace of God running and overflowing on us like a waterfall constantly pouring over us, one of the things that Paul's going to do is essentially teach us at the outset of this letter that the end result of God doing everything that he does in the work of redemption is to bring himself glory. Now, in a sense, Paul is giving us an experiential realization of the first answer to the first shorter catechism question. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God. The apostle Paul was a man that learned that experientially. He wasn't teaching a catechism class. He wasn't teaching a mere theological lecture. He wasn't just explaining what words meant. He's not telling a mere statement of fact that, yes, God deserves glory. He's not even doing what he does in Romans 11 when he brings that grand book to a climax and says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways, past finding out are his judgments, of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is making a statement of fact here. He is turning Godward and Paul is facing God the Father and he is saying at the outset of this letter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's teaching us what the Christian life looks like at ground zero. The Christian life at ground zero looks like a people who know how to praise God for what he has done for them in Jesus Christ. I'll never forget hearing a sermon on this many years ago, well over a decade ago. Um, Ligon Duncan was preaching at a conference, and he told the story of a woman who had just lost um, a, a child. And he, he told the story of how this woman had told him that after she had learned that her child had died, she had gone into her room and she had got down on her knees and she, had begin, she began to worship God, much like Job. And I'll never forget Ligon Duncan saying, the reason she could do that when she lost her child is because she had been in the habit of doing it while she had her child. It was very potent. The reason she could do that when she lost her child is because she was in the habit of doing it while she had her child. 
Um, you know, not many of us are good at this. If we examine our lives, we see complaining spirits and bitter spirits and, and, and argumentative spirits and self-dependent spirits and self-congratulatory spirits. And, and, and we, we love to talk about our accomplishments and we love to boast about our achievements and what we've done and what we've accomplished or where we're going. We love to talk about our plans. We love to talk about what we do differently. And the Apostle Paul essentially takes all of that off of the table and he says the grace of God in the gospel should produce in us praise to the God of the gospel who pours out all those spiritual blessings on us. Now it's interesting it's not just God the Father who's in sight in this divine blessing it is a Trinitarian blessing. Anyone that spent any time studying this knows that, that if you, if you went through verses 3 through 14, you see that there's a Trinitarian structure. In, in verses 3 through verse um, 6, he is addressing God the Father, and he is speaking to God the Father about the work of the Father, the electing and the, the predestining and the adopting purposes of God the Father. And then, and then as he moves into the work of redemption, he, he speaks to the Father, praising him for what the Son has done in the work of redemption. In verses 7 down to verse 12, and then as he brings this benediction and this praise to God to a close, he, he mentions in verse 13 and 14 the sealing and applicatory work of the Holy Spirit. And essentially what Paul is praising God for is not first and foremost the blessings that he is going to enumerate. Paul is praising God for who God is and that in the work of redemption, the whole of the Godhead is involved. Eric Alexander puts it this way. The point that Paul is making is that when our salvation as sinners is in view, the whole resources of the whole Godhead are involved. When our salvation is in view, the whole resources of the whole Godhead is in view. You might think of it this way. God in the work of redemption, in bringing sinners to himself, in reconciling a fallen world to himself, in bringing everything to a place of glorious consummation, expends none of his, uh, withholds none of his perfect wisdom, but, but expends all of his wisdom in all of the members of the Godhead in making the perfection of his work of redemption known to us, the Father decreeing, the Son laboring for the work of redemption, the Spirit coming to make that work applicable to our souls and to seal the grace of God to us. And that ought to give us the strongest possible confidence. You know, too many of us, we have a, is God really for me? Um, does God really love me? We may not say that. We say, oh, no, I know. God is love. We say God is love. But in the depths of our souls, if we're honest with ourselves, there are many, many times that we do not feel that God is love. We do not feel that God is for us. In the depths of our souls and our consciences that are often weighed down with sin, we wonder is God really for me? And what Paul is saying in this benediction is, not only is God for you, but every member of the Godhead has done everything and is doing everything to bring you to himself for all of eternity and to lavish on you for all of eternity the exceeding riches of his kindness in Christ Jesus. And you know what? 
But I'm going to say this tonight. The only way you get to a place of praising God from your soul, not just with your lips, but from your soul, the way that Paul is making this divine blessing to God is for those truths to wash over you again and again and again and again and again. And you need them to wash over you tonight like you needed them to wash over you the first time you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. And so Paul is giving us this divine benediction, this divine blessing proclaimed. He is giving us this Trinitarian blessing. He is telling us that all the members of the Godhead are at work in in bringing us to glory. Now, before we briefly move on from this, this point, I just want to point out that sometimes we can make the mistake of thinking that bringing God glory and enjoying his blessings are mutually exclusive. I have had many friends who have said to me uh, mistakenly, I believe over the years, it's not about what God does for us, it's about him getting glory. I know what they mean. It's not about us getting glory. It's not about us boasting. It's, we don't have a therapeutic gospel. The center of the gospel is not first and foremost God helping me out of my depression. That is not the center of the gospel. The gravity, the center of gravity of the gospel is that God forgives my sins. He reconciles me to himself. He adopts me into his family. He conforms me to the image of his son. And he guides me all the way to my heavenly rest in his presence. That is the heart, the epicenter of the gospel. But I think sometimes mistakenly people pit these two things together. I've often thought it's interesting that while Presbyterians love um, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, especially that first, that first question, um, that first half of the answer is what almost always gets emphasized. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Man's chief end is to glorify God. But the Apostle Paul is essentially telling us that man's chief end is to glorify God by understanding um, appropriating, holding on tightly to, and enjoying all of the spiritual blessings that God has freely given to us by grace in Jesus Christ, that it is not mutually exclusive, that we would delight in the God of our redemption for the redemptive blessings we have in him, that the way to delight in him, the way to get to the place where we are praising him is to understand, to embrace and to hold on firmly to the blessings of God while enjoying them personally in the experience of our lives. And so that leads us, secondly, to consider the spiritual blessings enumerated. Notice, as the Apostle Paul is unfolding this in verse 3 in this benediction, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I told you at the outset that there are many misunderstandings about uh, the, the, the concept of blessing. Where does blessing come from? What is true blessing in the church? The church is inundated with people that are going to tell you, if you're blessed, this is going to go well, and you must be blessed, and I hope God blesses you. And, and 99% of the time, it is a, with a view to earthly and temporal blessings or circumstantial peace and prosperity. I want to say this tonight. While most of us 
would reject in this room, I hope, would reject the idea that the, the, the chief center of blessing from God is in amassing as much as we can or having a better life in what we have laid up for ourselves in material goods and perhaps even in health. We understand that we're going to face health challenges. We understand these things. I think that most of us probably are not so skillful at realizing that when things look bleak, when our circumstances don't look like they, we think they should, and when things around us seem to look like they are crumbling, we begin to ask, am I really loved by God? Has he really blessed me? Because what we tend to do is we tend to read the Bible through the lens of our circumstances rather than reading our circumstances through the lens of the Bible. And when we do that, what we tend to do is try to take the bull by the horns. Well, if I make this right move and I do this right and I do this and I'm responsible here and here and here, I'll have this blessed life. We would never verbalize it, but we think it. We think it, we feel it, we act on it. And what Paul is saying is that the blessings of God are entirely, at least in this section, entirely spiritual in nature. He tells us he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has not withheld one spiritual blessing from his people. Jesus is a reservoir of spiritual blessings, and they are all yours. God has said he has, he has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, in order to get this, we have to go back to the Old Testament. We have to, we have to back up. We have to keep backing up, and we have to back all the way up to the garden. And we have to go back to that place where God's initial blessing rested when God created the world and he, he looked over it and he said, it is good. He is pronouncing divine blessing. He is giving his, his approval. He is saying, I have blessed the world that I have made. And when he put Adam in that choicest of places, when he took him from the primordial dust and he put him into that garden temple and he came and dwelt with him, the chief blessing that Adam had was not in naming the animals and cultivating the garden in enjoying the beauty and the bounty. The chief blessing was that he had God and that his soul was satisfied with God and that he had communion with God and that he was reconciled to the God who formed him out of the dust of the ground and who breathed that divine blessing of life into his nostrils and he was with his maker and he walked with God and he breathed God's air and he knew the blessing of fellowship and unbroken communion with his maker. And we know the story. We know that no sooner was Adam deceived and no sooner did Adam give in to his wife being deceived and no sooner did Adam disobey God that he was banished. He went from the garden to the wilderness God necessarily pronounced those curses. He cursed the serpent. He cursed the woman in the place of childbirth, the place of blessing. He, he cursed the ground that man was to work, the place of blessing, the place of fruitfulness, the place where man would have taken dominion, would have cultivated that garden and turned the world into the temple for he and his descendants. And God pronounces those curses. And the rest of the story of the Bible is, how do we get back? How do we get back to the place of blessing? Will God restore his blessing again? 
And it's interesting, I've noted this to you in the past, that what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3.13, that, that Christ became a curse for us, so that as it is written, the blessing of Abraham might be ours. That the solution is that the second Adam comes, and he becomes the curse bearer, the sin bearer. I've told you I love that the imagery from Adam's curse is all realized in Jesus. God curses the ground. He tells Adam, you're going to return to it. He tells Adam, you're going to sweat and you're going to eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Labor work is going to be burdensome. And, and he curses the ground with the thorns and, and it's going to be difficult. And Jesus comes and as he begins that work of redemption, he begins that work of bringing the spiritual blessings, Jesus uh, begins to sweat great drops of blood in the garden. Very interesting, in a garden. The second Adam begins to sweat. He begins to take that curse on himself. And he sweats great drops of blood. And then he goes to the cross and he's wearing the crown of thorns, the symbol, the, cor- the thorns that God had cursed the ground with. And then he breathes his last and he returns, as it were, to the dust. Just as God had told Adam, from dust you are, to dust you will return. And yet in the resurrection, Jesus secures those blessings for us. And as Paul now enumerates those blessings and he has told us, look at the Lord Jesus. Look at what he has done. Look at how he is the blessing provider, the source of all blessing. What Paul now does as he sets them out is he gives us seven spiritual blessings. Now, You might think that that's fanciful, that I came up with seven, but I'm going to try to point them out to us tonight. Notice first, as he begins to tell us the blessings of God, and he begins to unpack this, notice verse four, he tells us that God the Father, the first blessing, is that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now, let me just say this before we look at this in depth. Every one of the seven blessings are said to be in Christ, in union with Jesus. If you are in union with Jesus, if you are united to the Savior by faith, you have those blessings. They are in him. Even our election. You now, people argue about the doctrine of election all the time. For the life of me, I don't know why. Because it's one of the most comforting doctrines in the Bible. Um, you know, Jesus is called the elect one in Isaiah. God calls Jesus my servant, my elect one. Um, The unfallen angels are called the elect angels. Why didn't they fall? Because they're the elect angels. Why won't they ever fall? Because they're the elect angels. And as Paul now comes to talk about us in the realm of redemption, he says the first blessing, if you're a believer, is that you are a believer because God has chosen you. As much as our flesh wants to say, there must be something in me. There must be something that made me different, that, that there must be something in me that enabled me to believe in Jesus and makes me, in that way, let me say this, dare I say this, better than people that reject Jesus. Because it is better to believe in Jesus than to reject Jesus. It is better and more virtuous. In fact, I would argue that it is the greatest of all virtues to trust in the living God. And so if you have trusted in God and your neighbor has not, there is something in us, in our old nature, that wants to say there must be something that I did to, in order for God to confer the rest of these blessings that we're going to read about. And yet, 
That's the furthest thing from the truth. Paul starts and says the first blessing is that God the Father chose us in Christ before, in case you're wondering, not he, he, notice the text doesn't say, he looked down the corridor of time and saw the amazing decision that you made in your awesome free will, and therefore back here, he chose you, even though that doesn't matter because you already chose him. He does not say that. He says, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means before the matter that we are standing on, the air we are breathing, the thunder we are hearing, the the lights that we see, the people that we see before any of this existed, there was God and God chose in his son in order for the son to redeem those that he wanted to choose. Now, It's Paul. It's not me. I don't want to reject the Apostle Paul. Jesus taught election to. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Just in case. You didn't choose me. I chose you. Pointed you to go and bear good fruit. John 15. But the first blessing is that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And then notice notice verse 5. It's as if Paul wants to just reiterate again after moving on to adoption. He says... He predestined us. He predestined. That means he pre-established your destiny. He decided you are destined for glory. As wicked and sinful as I am, and as wicked and sinful as you are, the most amazing truth is that God the Father, irrespective of our sinfulness, in love, has chosen us in Jesus before the foundation of the world and has appointed us for everlasting life. And that is the most comforting of all the truths in the Bible. That is is the foundation. That's the bedrock. Like anything else we talk about, any other spiritual blessing I mention, none of that has a foundation to rest on unless we have the doctrine of election. Now, some people are going to say, what about evangelism? I love this quote, uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, when people ask him, how, if God's sovereign, what about evangelism? Spurgeon says something like, well, that's none of your business. Your business is to go out and tell every creature under heaven the gospel, and God's business is to draw those who are his to himself. I love that. It's none of your business how they work together. They're, it's an antinomy. There are two things that belong together that don't seem to make sense. And how do I reconcile it? It's none of your business. There is a way to reconcile it to a degree. But I like Spurgeon. It's none of your business. Your business is to preach the gospel. God's business is to draw sinners to himself. That's the beauty of this blessing. Now, the second spiritual blessing. Notice notice that he moves from election in verse 4, to sanctification in verse 4. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Well, is it possible that God chooses somebody, they live like hell, they reject Jesus, and they go to heaven? Isn't that what you're saying with your doctrine of election? No. (laughs) Are you saying that someone can reject Jesus, but if they're chosen, they're going to go to heaven, and it doesn't matter what they do? No. He chose us because he wanted a holy people for himself. He chose us in order to make us holy. He chose us to be a holy people. He chose us to sanctify us. And then notice the third blessing. We are told in verse 5, he predestined us for 
adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Not only did God choose us to make us holy, he chose us to be his children. This morning we heard about justification. And I've always liked this illustration I heard from one, one of my seminary profs. In justification, God takes guilty sinners who are in a law court before him. He justifies them and declares them righteous, and then he moves them into the living room of his grace. He brings them into the family room. He takes them from the law court to the living room. I think that's magnificent. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have been brought as a guilty sinner from the law court of God's justice into the living room of his lavished grace. I think that's amazing. You know, I've told you in the past, the doctrine of the adoption is one of those doctrines that gets the least airtime from Christian pulpits, and yet it has been argued to be the greatest of all spiritual blessings because there's almost no greater blessing than to be a son or a daughter. It is a greater honor to be the son or the daughter of the king of heaven than to be a son or a daughter of the greatest king on earth. I watched a show a documentary years ago with sort of mixed feelings. It was called Born Rich, um, and it was about all these heirs uh, to these famous um, almost monopolies in America, um, these, these great uh, companies that were three, four, five generations long, Johnson & Johnson and whatnot, and, and they talked about the great blessings that these, these kids had, and yet they were squandering it all, living wickedly in the world, blowing their parents' money, not, not working, just being lazy bum cheese. That is a word, lazy bum cheese. Um, and, um, and as I watched that, I thought, you know, our hearts long to have been born into some family like that. And yet you see the effects of that. You, on, uh, by way of contrast, have been born into the divine family of God and adopted into God's family so that he calls you a son and a daughter in Jesus Christ. Well, very quickly, let's continue. Notice that the Apostle Paul, as he continues to unpack these, now tells us that he, at the end of verse 6, has blessed us or has conferred favor on us, is what it is in the Greek. He has conferred his favor on us in the beloved. Now, it is a shorthand for justification. He has accepted us so that he might lavish his favor on us. He has accepted us as righteous in his sight. He has accepted us as men and women who can now stand before him knowing that he has forgiven our sins. Notice what Paul does. No sooner does he say that that we have been accepted in the beloved. Notice verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We often in justification talk about the blessing of imputed righteousness. We often talk about Jesus kept the law for us and, and we get that credited to us when we believe. But our, our, our confessions and, and I believe the Bible teaches that the other side of justification is that all of our sins have been forgiven. That in his blood, all of our sins have been washed away. That every one of the sins you have ever committed are committing today, will commit tomorrow. All of them have been forgiven legally, judicially, in the blood of the beloved. And because the Father loves him, because he is the beloved, he accepts that offering as an offering of infinite value so that we can say with the great Puritans, who, who love to say, there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. 
He has accepted us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Well, Paul tells us yet another blessing that we have. He tells us in verse 8 that he has lavished on us all of these things and he has made them known to us in wisdom and understanding. He has not left them out here in the theoretical stratosphere of theology. He has sent his spirit to instruct our hearts in these things. He has opened our minds. He has opened our hearts. He has given us spiritual understanding. Paul will actually pick up this idea again when he prays that God would give them further understanding, that he would enlighten the eyes of their hearts, that they might understand these blessings. Understanding the blessings is one of the blessings. I love that. Just getting what the spiritual blessings are in Jesus is one of the spiritual blessings in Jesus. I think that's wonderful. Just getting it. If you get it, you can say, God has blessed me. That is... That is part of the divine blessing. Well, as Paul goes on, he talks now about um, the blessing to come in the future. And he talks about God reconciling everything in heaven and on earth. And that God has this cosmic plan that the blood of Jesus didn't, wasn't just shed to redeem individuals and, and to give you all of these blessings so that you can hang out in isolation and, and, and just enjoy them in a cave somewhere rejoicing in these blessings that you have, but that God has given all of his people all of these blessings and that his purpose is that in the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, those which are in heaven and those which are on earth, all of the redeemed humanity, all of those that he saved through the blood of Jesus with the angels and the archangels and all of the heavenly beings and the heavenly host and that he will gather them together in one and that that is going to be the grand, the grand exhibition of the blessing of God. And at that time, he is going to say, my son and my daughter, I am bestowing on you the full heavenly inheritance. Notice what Paul says. He says in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that in the fullness of the times, God will pay us that full inheritance that his son merited for us. The son, who is the firstborn from the dead, the heir of all things, who by his atoning death and his resurrection received that inheritance and secured it for us. And as the apostle Peter says, For you who believe in the Son of God, there is an inheritance undefiled, incorruptible, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In a sense, Paul's saying, I've told you about the blessings you're enjoying now. There is yet a glorious consummation a blessing of the everlasting inheritance when God reconciles all things to himself and brings you to glory. Now there's a seventh, and that seventh blessing, and it is the blessing of all blessings. I think Paul saves it for the last. He says that if you have trusted in Christ, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the promised Holy Spirit. What greater blessing Dare I say this, that election, 
sanctification, adoption, justification, wisdom and understanding, and even the everlasting inheritance would be as nothing if we did not have God indwelling us. The greatest blessing is that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, that God says, I will give you myself. I will seal you for myself. I will put my name on you. I will set you apart. I will preserve you for glory. I will give you my spirit as a guarantee, a down payment into your heart. I will shed my love abroad in your heart by the spirit. I will empower you by my spirit. I will sanctify you by my spirit. My spirit will be yours and he will bring you to glory. Now, third and very, very quickly, how do we appropriate these blessings? Because it's one thing for Paul to talk about them. It's one thing for him to put them all out there and say, here they all are. And for those that struggle with the doctrine of election, you're going to appreciate this. Notice what Paul says. Paul says in verse In verse 12, notice verse 12. He says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. The way to appropriate these blessings, the only way to experience these in your life is to hope in Christ. Are you hoping in Christ? Are you hoping in him? Hope that is seen is not hope. Is your soul hoping on the solid foundation of being with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you hoping in his return? Are you hoping in his consummate kingdom? Are you hoping in seeing his face in righteousness? Are you hoping and trusting in the Lord Jesus? Notice that Paul will then again in verse 13 say, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. It is necessary for you to hear the gospel and to believe the gospel. The way to appropriate these blessings is to hope in Christ and to believe the gospel. It is to believe everything that the Bible says about us in all of the ugliness in which it portrays us. And it is to hope in the Savior who has accomplished everything for us. Now I'm going to close with, with this thought. I imagine, because I know it's true for me, I imagine that most of us know when we come to a passage like this that we, are, we, we do not praise God like we should. <clears throat> the majority of our speech is not praising God and, and pronouncing divine blessing on God's glorious name. Most of us go through our days and we forget that we only exist for the glory of God. Most of us forget the saving benefits that we have in Jesus. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson says this. We live well below the level of benefits and privileges that we have in Jesus. We live well below the privileges that we have in Jesus. I am guilty of that every day of my life. And that means we come to this passage and we put ourselves under it and we say, Lord, Help me to understand these blessings and help me to praise you now so that when the hard days come, when the difficult days come, when the days come in which my soul says I have no joy in them, we will be able to say I will praise the God of heaven for what he has done for me in Jesus. I love, I love the, um, 
the final words of Habakkuk actually turn there for us. I love um, Habakkuk is writing at such a, a barren time in Israel's history and wondering when is God going to make good and when is God going to right wrongs and um, and he is um, he is he's despondent. Most of the prophets, by the way, if you want a chipper pastor, don't read the prophets because most of the prophets are not chipper. They're often depressed and discouraged. And yet he ends because Habakkuk got the promises of God and he got all this. And I love this. He ends his great prophecy by saying that the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. Let me contextualize it. If the grocery stores close down, if you can't buy food and you don't know how to hunt or fish, if the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I think Paul is teaching us how to do that. Paul's teaching us how to get where Habakkuk got. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Our Father, we do acknowledge, as we have already acknowledged, that we know we fall so far short of giving you the praise and the glory that is due to your great name. We thank you, our Father, that you have blessed us in Christ in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. We thank you for that sevenfold blessing leading to the sealing of your Holy Spirit. Our Father, give us spiritual wisdom and understanding. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see these things and embrace them and love them and be driven forward to praise you this week ahead. Our Father, do these things to the praise of the glory of your grace in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.